0: If I were to ask you this morning to rate your spiritual life on a scale of 1 to 10, I wonder what you would say. I think that most of us here who are followers of Jesus think that we do a pretty good job of taking the Word of God literally. We help a lot of people, we do a lot of good things. And yeah, we all would admit that there is areas that we can grow in, but overall, we're pretty good people, aren't we? In 2001, a man by the name of Jim Collins wrote a book. I borrowed this book from Joe. It's entitled Good to Great. And Jim, along with a large group of researchers, spent five years doing a lot of research on different size companies, mainly Big corporations trying to discover what it was that made some businesses achieve greatness, and they had benchmarks they had set up that this is what the business had to do to be great. What made some businesses become great, and some businesses could never make that jump, but stayed just a just an average business. So they researched this for five years, and after their research was complete, Jim concluded that the biggest hindrance to a company becoming great is that the company is doing okay, and they don't pursue greatness. So in other words, being good is the greatest hindrance to becoming great. And here's how he starts his book. He says, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government, principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives, in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. The vast majority of companies never become great, precisely because the vast majority become quite good, and that is their main problem. Now, I don't want to imply to you this morning that you should be achieving, pursuing greatness in your businesses, but I do think there's some admonishment here for us as Christians as well. Now, I don't know much about Jim Collins. I don't know that he's a Christian. But I think it would have been fitting in in this paragraph to add this sentence. Very few Christians become great Christians, principally because the vast majority are good Christians. And that is their main problem. I've entitled this message this morning, Striving for Perfection. And my message is taken primarily from the last half of Philippians 3, so you can turn there. And my desire this morning with this message is that we would be challenged and we would be encouraged to not settle for good enough in our walk with the Lord, but that we would continue to grow, continue to mature, to to continue to become more like Christ and become great Christians that God can use in His kingdom. I'm guessing about a month or two ago, many of you went out in your gardens, tilled the ground up, and started planting seeds. And then you went back maybe a week later and you start seeing little plants. And that's always exciting to see these little plants coming out of the ground. But then we come back a week later, and if we still see a lot of little plants, we're not excited anymore. Suddenly we become discouraged and we start trying to find out what's wrong because there's not growth. And then once these plants mature and become big plants, then what do we expect? We expect fruit. If, if the plant looks beautiful but doesn't produce fruit, then we know we have a problem. So we want growth, we want maturity, and we want fruit. The same way with our children. We love our little children, we love our little babies, but we don't want them to stay that way. We like to see growth, we like to see maturity, we like to see them developing and Learning new skills. Every year at school, our our school has health checks, and they measure our children's height, and they take their weight, and they check their eyes, and, and they look for patterns, and, and they're looking for growth. They're looking for improvement every year. And some years it's not much. Some years it's a lot. I remember when I was in school, I'm not sure if it was maybe sixth or seventh grade, something like that, I was, I was always one of the shorter ones in my class. And one year, people started telling me, man, you're, you're just growing a lot. And, and that year, health checks, if the records were right, I grew 10 inches in one year, if the, if the records were right. But in other years, it's just maybe half an inch. But we're looking for growth. We're looking for, uh, for growth. And I believe that our Christian life should be no different. We need to continually be moving, continually progressing, becoming more like Christ, understanding God more, understanding His will for us, producing fruit, bearing fruit. This isn't something that we see day to day, but as we look back over our life, we should be able to see growth. We should be able to see maturity. Some years there's going to be a lot of growth. Some years not as much. but There needs to be growth. And are we concerned... As we evaluate our walk with the Lord, are we concerned when there's not growth? When we look back and we realize that we've been stagnant, or that we've actually fallen away from God, does that concern us as much as we're concerned when our gardens or our children aren't growing? In Philippians, Christian maturity is a recurring theme that I see as I read through Philippians. Different places, Paul admonishes these people, or... Uh, praises them for the growth that he sees. In chapter 1, we see this several times. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, or will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So, God has begun a work in them. They've become Christians, but now he says he will perform it, or he'll continue to to work on this faith that they have until the day of Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, he says this, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. So again, growing more and more every day, growth, progression, maturity. And then in verse 27, He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we get the picture here of of a, a body of believers working together, striving together, for the faith of the gospel, moving forward, one step at a time. Not, not a lot, but it gives a picture of, of hard work and, and this group of believers putting their shoulder to the harness and one step at a time moving forward. So Paul wants to see this church grow. He wants to see them become more like Christ and to strive for perfection. And then in chapter 3, Paul addresses this subject in a little more depth. And he uses himself as an example. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to begin reading with chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk, so as ye have us, for an example. And then I want to jump down to verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. I find it interesting, Paul is someone we look up to, Paul is someone who was inspired by God to write scripture, uh, he, was, he was a great apostle of Jesus Christ, and yet in verse 12, he says, I'm not perfect, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying, that's, that's what I'm striving for, I'm pressing on, pressing on toward the mark. So what can we learn from this passage? I wrote down six things that I see in this passage as being imperative for us as Christians who are striving for perfection. Striving to grow. Striving to become more like Christ. And the first one is we must be willing to let go of our past and focus on the future. And we find that in verses 7 and 8 and then again in verse 13. Now, I don't know what you think when I say we need to let go of our past, but I can imagine that you're thinking our failures, people that have wronged us. Uh, That's typically what we think about when we think about forgetting the things behind us. It's it's those things in our past that we, we would rather forget, the times people have hurt us, the times we've messed up, the things we regret. But if you look at the context of these verses, Paul is actually talking about the things that people would have looked up to him for. The first part of chapter 3, Paul shares all the reasons why, in the eyes of the Jews, he was a great man. He was circumcised as a young boy. He was from the right family, from the right tribe, the right nationality. He says, concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. He He was blameless. And as far as his zealous, how zealous he was, he, was, he persecuted the church. He, did, he went all the way. But yet he says, in verse 7, these things that were gained to me, these things that people looked up to me for, these things that were a positive thing on my resume, he says, I count them as loss. And it's interesting in verse 7 and 8, three times he mentions the word Loss. He counts them as loss for Christ. And then verse 8, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And then again, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So he counts all these things in his past, these good things. Yes, some of them were things he regretted, persecuting the church. um, But yet, these were things that people would have admired him for. As far as a Jew, he was... He was a good man. He had a lot of credentials. And yet he says, I count them as loss that I may win Christ. I think Paul recognized that if we hold on to things in our past, whether it's good things or whether it's bad things, it's going to hinder us in our march forward. It's going to continue, it's going to hinder us in our growth. It's easy to hold on things in our past, to hold on to things in our past. Some things are good, some things are bad, but we hold on to those things, and it keeps us from moving forward. I don't recommend that you do this, but when I was younger, I used to keep up a lot with our local college football team. And I think it was in 2004, JMU won the national championship. And that was that was great. You know, this they were they were the best, and this was exciting for JMU fans. And the next year, going into the next season, everyone was excited. You know, they had had a good recruiting class. They were the number one team. They were projected to win it all again. Uh, it was it was exciting. You know, where's this team going to go this year? And I, I, di- I didn't look this up to I'm, I'm, to verify what I'm saying. I'm just strictly going off my memory. But it was either the first or second game they played that next season was against, I believe it was Coastal Carolina. And it was a smaller school. It was a newer school. They didn't really have a uh, – I think their football program was fairly new. And so JMU was projected just to, to blow them out. And even Coastal Carolina's coach said – He had watched footage, and JMU was was way better than them. But you can guess what happened. JMU went down there to this underdog school, and they lost. They got beat. The number one team in the country, and they got beat. And afterwards, the coach for JMU said something like this. He said, yeah, he said, we went down there expecting an autograph session, and a football game broke out, and we weren't ready for it. What he was saying was, we came down here as heroes. We were reveling in last year's successes. We were, we were the greatest. And we forgot that we, we had a football game to play. And we didn't come prepared. And I believe the same thing can happen to us. As we have victories in our Christian walk, as we have successes, as people praise us, it can, it can make our heads swell. And we can get confident. And we can forget that the battle is still raging. That we still have a, a war to fight. So let's be encouraged by our successes. Let's, let's learn from the past, but then let's remember to press on, to take up our cross, to put on the armor of God, and to keep fighting. If, if we're out plowing a field and we spend half the time looking back to admire our straight row, our, our row isn't going to stay straight very long. Or if we're painting a wall, And half the time we're admiring the the beautiful job we're doing, we're soon going to have paint where we don't want it. We must be looking ahead, focusing on what's ahead, becoming more like Christ. And then in verse 13, Paul says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth, Under those things which are before, I press toward the mark. We all have things in our past that are unpleasant. We all have things in our past that are exciting, victories we've won. But whatever it is, we need to let it go and look toward the future. Continue to grow, continue to become more like Christ. Never forget that we're in a battle. The second thing, then, that I see in these verses is we must persevere. Paul says in verse 12, he says, I follow after, or the NIV says, I press on. And then again in verse 14, he says, I press toward the mark, giving the idea of it not always being easy, but he's, he's pushing forward. That's, that's what he's trying to do. One step at a time, push, pushing forward, pressing on, continuing to make progress. So Paul's attitude is, I'm forgetting what's behind me, and I'm pressing forward. I'm putting my shoulder to the harness, and I'm pressing forward. Becoming great at anything is never easy. It takes work. It takes perseverance. It doesn't happen overnight. I think this is even more uh, encouraging when we when we remember that this passage was written by Paul from prison. He wrote this in prison, and if you go to chapter one verses twelve through fourteen, Paul says this, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. so he's saying me being in prison, me suffering these hardships, have actually worked to further the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on to explain that more. He says in verse 13, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word, of, to speak the word without fear. So Paul is saying, these hardships I'm facing, these things I'm going through, God is using them to advance his kingdom. And so even though it's hard, even though it's painful and uncomfortable, I'm pressing on one step at a time because God is using these circumstances to further the gospel. He says the gospel is being uh, spread because I'm in prison, and other Christians are are becoming more bold because they, they see me in prison. So we need to learn from Paul's attitude that no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I'm facing, I'm going to press on. And I'm going to trust that God's going to use my circumstances for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. And then the third thing, we must have a goal. Paul says, I press toward the mark. He wasn't just aimlessly moving forward, but he had a goal in mind. He had a mark. That he was aiming toward. We're going to struggle to be victorious in the Christian race if we don't know where we're headed, if we don't know what's what's ahead of us, if we don't know the 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 prize that is waiting for us. We must have a goal. I want to read a few verses out of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul here is talking about a runner in a race. And here's what he says. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So he's saying in a race, there's a goal in mind. There's a finish line. if you just go out there and try to beat your buddy and you don't have a a finish line, you're going to wear out pretty quick. But if you have a goal in mind that I'm going to make it a mile or I'm going to make it two miles, then you have something to aim for. And he says, run so that you win. Run so that you reach that goal that you're aiming for. And then he says in verse 25 what that goal is. An imperishable crown. And then verse 26 he says, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. So Paul had a, a fixed goal in mind. He had a purpose in life. He was, he was moving forward uh, knowing that, that, that there was an end in sight, that there was a finish line. He was living with a purpose. So what was Paul's goal? Well, he tells us in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, in Christ Jesus. So what's the prize of the high calling? That's heaven, right? Well, I think it's more than that. Paul's goal was an imperishable crown, but it wasn't just that. If we go back to chapter uh, to verse 10 in chapter three, Paul states his goal a little more clearly. Here's what he says, verses 10 and 11 that I may know Him, that I may know Christ, that I may grow in my understanding of Christ, who He is, what He wants for me, and the power of His resurrection. Now, so far it sounds good, right? We all want to know Christ. We all want to experience His power. But then look what he says next. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Or I believe the NIV says, The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, or being made like him in his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's ultimate goal was eternal life, but it was more than that. Paul wanted to know Christ better. He wanted to to experience his power and he wanted to share in his sufferings. He wanted to become like Christ in his death. And that to me is a real challenge. We, we like the Christian life to be comfortable. We like it to be uh, filled with peace and joy and love and happiness. But how do we respond to tribulation? How do we respond to suffering? And that's something that is very encouraging as we look at Paul's life. He experienced much suffering, and yet he rejoiced in it. He He was... He counted it a blessing that he was able to suffer for Christ. I've related with a young man over the past number of years who has struggled in his Christian life. And I've always been... I've gotten frustrated, I guess, as I've related with him. And as I point out things in his life that... um, that he needs to grow, areas he needs to grow, whether it's his music, whether it's the places he goes, the friends he has, whatever. But the one thing that this young man continues to come back to is, so you're telling me that if I do this thing, I'm going to go to hell? Or you're telling me that if I don't do this, I'm going to go to hell? Or you mean that everybody that listens to this kind of music is going to go to hell? And I've... I've tried to get through to him that that's not, the, that's not what matters. It's not about whether or not you, get, you escape hell. It's how is my life glorifying God? Am I growing in my walk with Christ? Am I doing everything I can to please him? That was Paul's desire. And I think too often we, we try to do just enough possible to make it into heaven, barely squeak through the gate. And if we can make it into heaven, why does the rest matter? But that wasn't Paul's attitude. He was doing everything he could to know Christ, to glorify Christ, to be like Christ. Not just attain that final reward of heaven, but to be like Christ, to share in his sufferings, to tell the world about him. So what is your goal? Is it okay with you if you're just an average Christian? Are you striving to be a great Christian? Are you focused on, on the goal? If we have a goal in mind, it's going to affect everything we do. And in the passage I read from 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the example of an athlete, a runner and a fighter. And there's a lot of people that are good at a sport, but there's very few people that become great at a sport. But I think the one thing that separates a good athlete from a great athlete Is a great athlete dedicates their life to it. I read somewhere that a typical athlete spends five to six hours a day training. And you've probably read stories of athletes and the diets they have and the the workout regimens they, they follow. They've dedicated their life because they want to be a great athlete, they want to be the best. They have a goal in mind. The same way for a Christian it's not real difficult to be an average Christian. But if we're going to be a great Christian, we need to dedicate our life to it. It's going to affect every area of our life. Everything that we do is going to be affected by our goal. And then the fourth thing, we need each other. As we strive for perfection, we need each other. And I see that in verses 15 through 17. Paul says in verse 17, be followers together of me. Paul was inviting these people to follow his example. But he didn't just say to follow me. He says, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us, for an example. Or, I think the NIV makes that a little clearer. He says, take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. So, Follow me and look for other people that you can follow. Look for other people that you can follow their example and and do this together. Don't try to do it yourself. And I think that's so important. In our pursuit of perfection, we need each other. We dare not think we can do it by ourselves. We need role models. We need godly role models. We need men and women who encourage us, who challenge us. And we also need to be role models that others can follow. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verses 11 through 13. Here in Ephesians, we have a... uh, Paul is talking about the church and the way God designed the church, the way He set the church up. And here's what he says. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So he's saying here that God designed the church with diversity. We all have different roles. We all have different talents. We all have a different place to fill in the church. That's the way God set it up. And then here's what he says in verse 12. Why God set it up that way. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what the church is for. That's part of the role of the church is to build each other up, to to help us to grow, to become more like Christ, to perfect us, to... Wear off our rough edges and make us people that God can use. Make us grow. Make us mature. God designed the church that way. He designed the church with diversity so that we can help each other. If we were all the same, we wouldn't need each other. But again, we don't just need to look for godly role models. We need to strive to be a godly role model. We need to be like Paul and live in such a way so that we can tell those that are following us, hey, do it, do it like I've shown you. Watch me. Follow my example. We can also help each other to perfection by our prayers. In Colossians 4, verse 12, we read about a man... We don't hear about a whole lot, named Epaphras. And here's what it says about Epaphras. It says, He is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. So here was a man who spent much time praying for his brothers and sisters so that they would become more like Christ. They would become perfect and complete, it says, in the will of God. So even if maybe because of our age or our location or whatever, we can't be a role model to someone, we can't be someone they watch physically, we can still pray for them and we can encourage them that way. But I do want to point out that as important as it is to have role models, we can never fully rely on man to be our perfect example. It's interesting Paul tells the church in verse 17 to follow his example. And yet in verse 12, he says, I'm not perfect. So even Paul, this perfect role model that he tells people many times, follow me. He also says, I'm not perfect. And we need to recognize that. If I think it's easy to judge our spirituality by looking at other people. And we judge ourselves against other people. But if people are our benchmark, they're going to let us down. They're going to fail at times. The word of God must be the benchmark that we judge ourselves by. It must be the standard that we hold ourselves accountable to. And our brothers, our sisters can encourage us. They can can help us in this area, but the word of God must be what we come back to. The fifth thing then, we must always be conscious of who we really are. In verse 20, Paul says, for our conversation or our conduct, our way of life, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not of this world. And we we see that throughout the scriptures. We're not of this world. We're citizens of another kingdom. We're from the kingdom of God and we must always remember that. If we insist on being part of this world, it's going to greatly hinder us and our pursuit of holiness, and our pursuit of God. So we must remember who we really are. And in the sixth thing, we will only obtain true perfection when we at last see our Savior face to face. Again, verse 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Back in Genesis, when God created man, everything was perfect. But because of man's choice, the curse and sin came on the earth. And since that time, God has begun to unfold his plan of redemption. And it's only through our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, that this redemption can take place. And this salvation begins to work in our life. And he saves us, but yet this salvation is not fully complete until the church is taken home until we see our Savior face to face. And that's when this plan of redemption is finally complete. And we will, our vile bodies will be changed and will be made like his glorious body. Again, we will be perfect. And that's, that's what we, that's what our ultimate goal is. That's when we will at last be reach perfection. So where are you? Are you content with where you're at in your Christian walk? Have you let go of the things of your past? Do you have a goal? Where's your citizenship? Are you okay with being good enough? Or are you striving for perfection? I want to close with Philippians 4 verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Lord bless you. Let's have a song.